Hello, and welcome back to the 16th TFA Daily World Cup podcast of our World Cup series. I'm your host, Adam Scully, and we have another exciting episode for you all today. Heartbreak for Japan, elation for Croatia. Slako Dalic's men are through to the quarterfinals of the World Cup for the second consecutive tournament under the head coach. Hajime Mariasu's side bow out, but certainly didn't go down without a fight, beating Spain and Germany in the group phase and taking Croatia all the way in the last 16 tie. Unfortunately, Japan need to work on their penalties, as Dominic Lovakovic equaled the World Cup record for making three penalty saves in a shootout, matching his compatriot Subasic in 2018, and Portuguese goalkeeper Ricardo all the way back in 2006 against England. Croatia have progressed to the quarters, being the fifth team to do so, and will meet the winners of yesterday's late kickoff Brazil. Having lost to Cameroon last week and looking far from being world beaters against Serbia and Switzerland, PJ's side blew everyone out of the water last night, turning on the Jogo Bonito tenfold and giving off vibes of the 1982 Tete Santana side for their free-flowing, tricky and scintillating attacking play. Brazil trashed South Korea 4-1 to book their place in the last eight, the round in which they were eliminated in 2018 against Belgium. Paulo Bento has since departed as head coach of the Asian Giants, but he and his players can be proud of putting up such a valiant display throughout the tournament. Unfortunately, they were simply no match for Neymar and friends as Brazil ran riot. In this episode, we will look through the tactics of both games, seeing how Brazil and Croatia progress to set up another mouth-watering fixture this weekend. Thankfully, to help me unpack all the action, I'm joined by TFA analyst Brian Marquez and Ronnie Dog Media's head of betting and affiliate Lucas Mondelo. But before we get into the tactics from each game, Lucas will be going through the latest odds in the betting market regarding each team. And so we ask that you make sure you gamble responsibly when taking the advice on board, and also make sure that you're over 18 and that you comply with the gambling regulations of your country. So without further ado, let's dive right into the analysis. Brian, Lucas, thank you so much for joining me today to review another excellent 24 hours of World Cup action. Let's jump straight into things and start with the the heartbreaking defeat for Japan in the early kickoff yesterday. Of course, the game finished one all after full time and then extra time and it went to penalties and Japan displayed a very poor serve of penalties, I think it's it's fair to say. Uh, the Croatian goalkeeper, uh, Dominic Lovakovic, came away with the, I think he's the joint record holder now, with, uh, I believe, Subasic from 2018, another Croatian, and Ricardo in 2006 for the most penalty saves in uh, a World Cup penalty shootout in the knockout phase. So, Croatia are true. I thought Japan were pretty decent uh, overall in the game. They I, I mean, I thought in the full 90 minutes it was an, actually an excellent match overall. I was really impressed by the attacking prowess of both sides, even if they didn't score, especially the first half. There was numerous, numerous opportunities. Brian, talk to me then about the, the the breakdown of the tactics from the match, which led to such a an entertaining affair, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, it was entertaining. And I think it was the <laughs> most Croatian thing we have seen because they are massive on the penalty shootout or in extra time but it, Japan played a very decent game for me Croatia tried to lock uh, the midfield and then if Japan pass through the midfield Josko Vardiol have a really really massive game defending his box or defending back to them and it's it, it was a really cool game in the tactical one because Japan the, the Japan games this tournament have have been very good in that kind of way they look to be and play 
what they like the most, be comfortable not having the ball in some situations and then run into space with some players. And again, it was a plan for the first half and the second half, mm-hmm. the substitutions and all that. That is kind of crazy way to see football and, <laughs> and to plan a game, but it's valid, you know, it, it's, it's really yeah. good. Um, I kind of like the game in the perspective like Japan were dominating the spaces and the opportunities they have because they were kind of um, creating chances and scoring. Well, they, they scored a massive goal in that uh, um, kind of prepared set piece. It, it, it wasn't a set piece because it was taken, but you know it, it was a short corner. And then, well, Croatia and Perisic were a massive header. That that is a brilliant header from from Perisic. But probably the best header in the tournament, I'd imagine. I think there was a I can't remember the game it was. There was an excellent header recently. Um, I don't remember the match. I feel like it was a Croatia match too. I could be wrong. I I think this and the one from Valencia in the first match. Oh yeah, you're right. It was Valencia. Sorry, apologies. My bad. <laughs> and Valencia against Qatar. It, it, it yeah. It was unbelievable, but yeah. yeah, it's heartbreaking for for Japan because it, it's a good project that has been developing players and mm. taking them abroad. Lots of players and European sides have been having interest in signing them, and it's heartbreaking. But I think they will get there again because they have young players, really good young players, and. A really good coach. He knows his players since Japan under 23. Mm-hmm. And then he went on to coach the Japan first team. And it's, he was the assistant manager is, in 2018 uh, when yeah, they got exactly. to the last. They, they were knocked out of the last 16 also, but this time through Belgium. But they were very close to knocking Belgium out. It was a, a great game. I've mentioned it several times in the podcast before. It was an excellent match. I think it finished 3 2. And yeah, just touching on that though. There is uncertainty that Moriyasu stays on as Japan's manager. I, I want to ask you a question, Brian, and Lucas, I'll throw it to you on this as well. I saw something interesting. I think it was um, Jimmy Conrad. He was a former, I believe, American international player. He put a tweet out, and it was an interesting discussion where he said, should international managers be, I suppose, rotated every World Cup, essentially? Because... Apart from Vittorio Pozzo in 1934 to 1938 with Italy, no other international manager at the World Cup has won back-to-back, or sorry, won two World Cups. And I think it probably speaks to a wider, it probably plays into a wider discussion over international managers that they, I think, refreshing that position every three or four years is probably best for teams because ultimately they need a new voice because players rotate so much. You know, like you look at Roberto Martinez, that was stale by more than two years. That was stale since 2018. And he stayed on to have a probably underperform at the Euros and then definitely underperform at this World Cup. Brian, I'll come to you first. Then. Do you agree or disagree with that that kind of sentiment then? Or that, that belief that maybe managers should be replaced? Like Moriasu's had a good tournament, but maybe now it's time for another guy to come in and, and, and take the reins. Yeah, I'm on a 50-50 decision with that because it's really tough to be a national team coach. Mm-hmm. With the 
things we have we, we talked yesterday i think uh of the how you train your team and why spain is looking very good because of that because you don't have the time that in a football club you have to yeah. train and that is very difficult to be a coach at a national team to make a short list of 25 26 players when you have thousands of players uh that you are scouting and you are listening to opinions of your coaching staff but i kind of agree with that decision of the i kind of respect process and i can i like quite a lot when teams do that but it's football teams and it's that, that play regular competitions every day that's what i'm saying and, do you think so would you say process i would um, I, I would i would think of club football where you are i suppose it's more so about getting that style of play and bursting through new talents whereas an in international stage it is about winning more so i yeah. argue than club it, football because it's such a a short knit I, I mean the games happen so um seldomly throughout the year that it's just winning 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 yeah and you only play two prestigious two major tournaments when when you're a national team coach mm-hmm. your continent cope like a um, copa america or the euros and then you play the world cup if you qualify mm-hmm. so if you have a bad result there it's a difficult context because it, it is a nation and a bad result the people even people that doesn't like football sticks to the world cup and sees you and there that's more critics if you fail so it's lots of pressure i think it's more pressure than than in a football team obviously both uh, contexts have a lot of pressure on you as a coach but i kind of agree with the decision of each four years change your manager because new generations come and new players come new ways of football they are playing come so it's kind of tough for you but like look at Joachim Lowe it it was a really long career at Germany but it was a moment that it it, it was over and I think it was a bit late because fans were early talking about yeah we won the World Cup but Mm. I think it's time to move on. I mean even if Deschamps wins the World Cup again there's I mean it's the reports are saying that Zinedine Zidane is essentially guaranteed to take over after the World Cup, which is 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 bizarre. But Lucas, I'll just quickly come to you on this then. In terms of the the betting market's view on managers being sacked, because I know they do have odds uh, on managers losing their jobs, which is quite unfortunate, I suppose, an unfortunate thing to bet on. How does it work then on the international stage? Because I feel like mm, it's difficult to say whether managers would lose their jobs more easily. I suppose they wouldn't. I suppose they're given a bit more time but you see them less seldomly how does the how does the odds differ i suppose is what i'm asking you between club football and international stage in terms of managers losing their jobs well we usually have more markets to who's going to be the next coach i mean in some way you can bet indirectly on the same thing for example if you get goals market you can bet on under 0.5 goal which is the same as exact scores nil mm-hmm. nil or something like that so you have indirect ways of betting on the same insight and when it comes to a coach losing a job 
you usually can bet, for example, in, in a match result that will likely in, result in that uh, outcome. For example, if that coach loses, I don't know, an important group stage game or a knockout stage game or a final, and you predict that this will be the aftermath of that situation, yep. then this could happen. But uh, in terms of, um, you know, long-term predictions and expectations of uh, international coaches, I would say that this this is a complex topic, but um, I, I understand what was said that, okay, no one has won two World Cups straight, but if you consider the Euros just as hard or nearly as hard, you have the situation when Delboski won twice in mm. a row. And that could be considered in terms of statistics in the betting markets just as hard. So I believe that I have a personal insight that I believe international coaches should be active at, at the club level all the time, that it should, you know, accumulate two roles because it gives you a sense of, you know, the fatigue that the players go through with more than one competition and they understand, you know, in, in a deeper way how the schedule is impacting things and, you know, the whole sense of belonging to a league that concentrates talent, which is the case of Italy, for example, the Premier League too, at some degree in Spain. So I believe that if there's something that could improve in the world of international football, it would be to see, you know, coaches more active at the club level, which is what, you know, generates all the talent that we see. Mm. And, and just touching on your point there, you said about Vincente Del Bosque. And there's a prime example of somebody who saw ridiculous success as a manager on the international stage, winning the World Cup and the Euros in, in the space of two years in 2010 to 2012. And then got knocked out of the group phase in 2014 and underperformed then again in, in 2016 at the Euros. And then that ultimately that was the end of his of his reign. And that that's had staled instantly. By by 2010 to 2012, they were unstoppable. They were by far the best nation on the planet. And then within two years it had staled. It's it's international football moves almost so quickly in that sense of managers really don't but they get more time, I suppose, than club managers would because club managers, I think, average, I think seven months is the average in English football, which is bizarre. But on the international stage, even though they don't last long because two years, I wouldn't argue, is that long for an international manager given that they only manage a handful of games per year anyway. You know, so it is quite interesting, an interesting discussion to have and probably a debate we could have all day, but... You know, I, I, there's a lot of managers like, for for instance, Paolo Bento now has left his post uh, from South Korea, which we'll jump on to now. And Lucas, I'll stay with you for this. That was, I would argue, the most fun performance I've ever seen from, uh, well, not ever, but most fun performance I've seen from a Brazilian team in a long time. That was peak. That was peak 1982 Brazil. Everyone having fun. Flair. I mean, Richardson's goal was silly, you know, bouncing it on his head three times, quick ball, buying into Thiago Silva, toward man running, oh, incredible. How 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 happy were you to see that kind of football back, considering Brazil have been, not subpar, but they haven't been as good as we know they can be at the tournament so far? Well, I think you have some factors that need to be analyzed to see why this happened. And this is important to, you know, understand things in a more like a cold way to to for example compare with the switzerland game in a group stage where brazil had problems to you know score that early i think the early goal helped a lot 
And even Paulo Bento's remarks before the game saying, we are tired, they're trying to jeopardize us, this is not good. It certainly didn't help South Korea. So you see a situation where the, this Brazilian side is full of young guys, had the goal, you know, at minute six, which happened, you know, helped a lot. And then they were like kind of more relaxed to to build these amazing scores of halftime. So yeah, in terms of football quality, I think it was even one of the best games, perhaps together with France Australia, in which we we saw the first, you know, action with Mbappe and guys like that. Mm-hmm. Personally, these days I tend to like more club level and the Champions League because of games like this. You know, when you see action, when you see not necessarily attacking football, but um, you know quality and not so many mistaken passes in the midfield stuff like that so now as we approach to the end of the tournament we're seeing more quality we're seeing what we like to see in football and uh, in terms of brazil right now i think they weren't really tested much in terms of the defensive problems if we get to see for example a final between france and brazil I don't know how Eder Militão will be able to mark Mbappé, for example. This could be. I don't think anyone hard. can mark Mbappé, to, to, yeah, to be fair. Yeah, so if you get anyone who's improvised in, in a role like this, then we can say that some stuff hasn't been tested in terms mm-hmm. of their strengths, but they did their homework and now the quarterfinals. Yeah, and, and, and I just, I was, I was just really impressed by Brazil. As I said, we, we haven't been. I haven't been overly amused with them so far in the tournament and they have had struggles. I mean, they lost to Cameroon, albeit with a rotated side. And I mean, they accumulated an XG of, I think, 3.8 and couldn't score. Switzerland, they struggled as well. Uh, Serbia was was a decent enough performance, especially in the second half. But this, against South Korea, I really saw Brazil and thought, wow, this is this is peak Brazil. This is the Brazil everyone loves to watch. How have their odds changed then? Because after France kind of comfortably breezed past Poland, I would have thought France would have been on par with Brazil, but then after watching last night, have Brazil kept their lead at the top of the the betting markets essentially for being odds-on favourites? Yes, as we were discussing before starting to record today's episode, I would say that uh, the market anticipates a lot in the outright market. So Mm -hmm. you have a situation in which Brazil had odds of around 3.4 before the last game, and now it's around 2.9. So it's not really a big blow to to the odds but um, if you want to bet right now of course you will get less value but mm-hmm. let's say the market's already expected this victory so you have uh, you know prices that uh, for example you had a situation of some teams already in the quarterfinals before other teams play and, and the markets don't stop so sometimes a team still in the round of 16 may have better you know smaller odds to win the cup because they're expected to reach quarterfinals anyways mm-hmm. so even a game in advance or uh, sorry a game played you know in excess of another team can impact the odds in, in different ways we now have brazil as as the favorites with 2.88 France with big odds, in my opinion, 5.5. Even if you consider they got to beat England now, I still think it's too much of a difference between the first and, and the second most likely team. See, Brazil did have Croatia too. They have Croatia in the quarterfinals, which is, with the fullest respect to Croatia, I would imagine an easier game 
in the eyes of the betting market than England would be at this moment in time. Yeah, Croatia was quite interesting actually because they had odds of fifty-one to one, and and then it dropped to to forty-six to one, and in in the beginning of the round of sixteen, and after the game it, it dropped to thirty-one to zero, uh, sorry, thirty-one to one. The the mm. point here is in this market you don't necessarily have usually buy just one team. So when you, for example, if you believe in France, for example, with these prices, which is interesting in my opinion, you can bet on several other teams with huge odds like uh, Croatia, Netherlands, Portugal, and even Spain with small with smaller stakes and try to compensate for potential losses. So it's like it's a market in which you can, you know, kind of like a horse racing event, mm-hmm. you can choose more than one and still profit. So these odds of Croatia allow a lot of, you know, wiggle room to, to some kind of composed bets. What's the best bet in your opinion, then, if you were to put, I suppose, as you said, multiple bets on in order to make a profit? Right now, uh, it's hard to make a profit with Brazil because uh, the odds are too little. For example, if you beat, if you try to beat the markets with France, for example, with odds of 5.5, Let's say you bet hundred bucks on on France, mm-hmm. you, you're going to multiply your money by four point five in terms of uh, potential profits. So if you have four hundred and fifteen profits, you can lose like four hundred in other bets and still make a profit. So buying seems like, um, in my opinion, Spain, Portugal, Netherlands, and Croatia are in a range of price. That could, you know, make a composed bet that could be decently profitable. But you you gotta have some faith on the the main team of the bet, which in this case would be France. It's not like I believe necessarily that France is more of a favorite than Brazil. Mm-hmm. It's just like the the prices of Brazil cannot sustain a, a composed or, you know, worthwhile also profit, caused, I suppose. Yeah, an accumulator bet, if you will. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Brian, I'll come to you then on the, the tactics of the game. Brazil are interesting in terms of their setup. They're not as, I suppose, rigid or as composed is, is a better word of, you know, than some of the other nations at the World Cup so far. They often attack with five and then kind of defend with five in a very old-school manner within a structure. You know, did they get away with that because of just the sheer quality they have and the fact that they have a guy like Casemiro protecting the back line? They have Thiago Silva, they have Marquinhos, and then going forward, they have Vinicius Junior and Neymar and Rafinha and all these exciting talents. The Brazil, I quite like, I really like and love the, the game yesterday because mm-hmm. when you see, when you see, that goal from Richarlison or that goal from Paqueta, it's unbelievable. And it's pure Brazilian football, you know, the creativity and the dynamic. Uh, but anyway, there are principles inside their game and their principles are positional. Tierman run, looking for the four player. Um, each one has a position allowed to play and, and space to occupy and that 2-3-5 position in, in attack it's also a rest defense mm-hmm. with two fullbacks tucking and that's interesting because like in the history of football Brazil were a more 
mobile team and electric team not in because they are still electric because of the individual quality but in a collective way they were obviously more dynamic but this thing is really doing the 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 work and the tasks for for Chite. The, the people said like it's an european side but it's kind of working and if brazil uh, are going to be crowned as champions in a positional way people are aren't going to talk about the history of brazil well the, let's let's talk, talk about, about that for a second though because that is an interesting debate to have the debate to have you know many I've criticized, I suppose, Chiche's style because, yes, it is very Eurocentric, I suppose, is the word that is the, the buzzword that's been thrown about. Much like all the football is now very Eurocentric. Even when you watch Brazilian Serie A, a lot of the football is Eurocentric, with the exception, which we'll get onto now, of Fernando Diniz's Fluminense. Okay, yes, they're very, um, I want to say, kind of cliched, very Pep Guardiola inspired ideas of positional play compared to. I suppose Dean is his kind of positionism and that kind of focus around the ball as opposed to space. Because right now in football, teams play in relation to space as opposed to the ball. And Chiche's teams have been, or Chiche himself has been criticized because it's not a Brazilian style essentially, it's more Eurocentric. But my, my opinion is on that. And I, I love all styles of football because I think the more styles of football, that are present, the better the game is. Because if everyone plays the same way, it's boring. It just is. You know, and I think that's what makes football beautiful is that you can have teams like Manchester City coming up against sides like a West Ham United where they'll be completely different in, time, in terms of their styles of play. Um, but in relation to Brazil and, and, and Chiche, you know, sh- surely he's chosen the best method to get results for his side as opposed to the style that would kind of bring this a nostalgic feel essentially back to the Brazilian team. I mean, you saw yesterday, it's not that they're boring to watch. They can still play with the classic kind of Tete Santana flair, essentially the Jogo Benito flair. Yeah. And there is not a correct way to play football. Mm-hmm. Any way to play football is good and it's valid and you can win games with that. You can lose, you can play well. And and play well, it's also a perspective for anyone. You can ask a Burnley fan if they love the way they play football and they're going to say yes because they win, because they love that way. But you're going to ask a Liverpool fan and, 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 and that is a consequence of playing different styles that are mm. valid. There is not a valid way to play football. And I understand the history and the context behind this Brazilian Jogo Bonito and uh, like Jogo Funcional or Relationism. So we have been lots of years seeing teams playing in relation to a space, each player with a position and all that. But the people is asking Brazil and Chite to play in relation to the ball and to be mobile and to be dynamic and to destroy teams like with this all these movements mm. with with his players that are kind they obviously will play in that marvelous marvelous but i think you got to respect 
the methods and the game style that a coach wants to play, and that's his ideas. And Chiche has been working. The idea has been working. This positional side and ideas have been working. I really like what Danish in Fluminense is doing right now. It's a new way to see football. It's not a new way, but it's like bringing it's it different. again. It's different. It's contrasting yeah, to the current style, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, it's different, and you gotta love that the 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 idea to bring a different uh, thing to football, and but they, like all things in football, it has his issues, like the rest defense. So mm-hmm. Tite wants to be more safe, and he plays positional play because he has a rest defense, and he has a a, a bit more of a balance. So any of these things. These ideas are obviously difficult to coach, but it's what the coach decides to grow with in his mind. Like, I love play positional football and to play with the space and dominate spaces. So that's the way I want to play. But and it's as well how a coach or like a person will act in your mind when you're growing like a coach. So like if you grow if you grew like Pep Guardiola with Johan Cruyff that he was the central man of his idea of occupying the spaces he's going to play like that he's and i think i think ultimately I mean, like that. people follow people follow trends in football and essentially what's the most successful i suppose trends and styles will always be used by managers i mean why wouldn't they why would they go against what makes teams successful so this kind of style has been successful for several years. And I'm not here to say this style is the be-all and end-all of football and it can't develop from here. If positionism is the next kind of, you know, playing in relation to the ball and that space, if that's the future of football, well, then that's that's fine by me. I'm, I'm, I'm always open to new ideas. But I just feel, especially on the international stage, we spoke earlier about Luis Enrique and how it's fascinating how he's been able to turn this team into, essentially give them a club feel. But he's picked players that can play that style of football. And Lucas, I'll throw to you on this because you made this point before the podcast started. You know, you look at the players that Brazil have in the the team and you've guys like uh, Danilo, who was playing in a central role last night as a left-back coming inside. He does that for Juventus. So Chiche has picked players, you know, and he's not tried to reinvent the wheel at the World Cup. He's putting them in i suppose a system that they 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 all know their functions because they've played them functions for teams mainly in europe i think apart from with the exception of danny alves and pedro at the minute they've all played in europe that have all played that style of play that space centric style of play lucas what are your what, what's your take on the, on the mark i believe that his job was well done in the sense of um, having some kind of criteria this is a word that has been used a lot in brazil and uh, that's why there was a big controversy regarding you know calling Dani Alves because mainly the criteria was guys that were fit playing well for the clubs and uh, you know trying to replicate as much as possible the club level positioning and what we had with Dani Alves was a very different situation, mainly, uh, you know, related to leadership. But the story of leadership and that argument kind of fell through when 
he was actually fielded and did not perform well in in the third game mm-hmm. of the group stage. But sir, I agree. I guess the situation with Danilo, as we were saying, wasn't really tested in in the last game against South Korea because uh, the first goal of Brazil very early kind of you know allowed the team to play in a more relaxed way. They could you know do their homework and the big games. And I can say Croatia is now a big game that could try to test them in terms of the defense, which is something we didn't really see happening in the World Cup yet. So Brazil still has to show some strength of that sector. And But, you know, answering more directly to your question, I agree. I, I think the coach did a good job in this sense. And the problems that are criticized in Brazil are mainly the you know the squad list with just uh, you know three actual fullbacks in good form and uh, yeah that that's almost confined to that uh, the rest is not that relevant and just before we wrap up then Brian I'll come back to you on the issue then because there are people on Twitter I suppose commentators I suppose you could say that have criticized Chiche and his use of that Eurocentric style. And of course the the main example and the primary example of the differing style that would be preferential for the Brazilian national team to use is Fernando Dines's Fluminense, which of course if you know is the only example that seems to be thrown about. Um you know, and this is where I get a bit frustrated sometimes. I'm not frustrated, but I could just get a bit uh, I kind of pass off the idea because essentially if somebody's coming to me with a theory on how football should be played and they say, why don't we do this, this, this and this, I'd want to see more success than a team that are doing relatively well in Brazil but are the well, the only team really in, in, in the world at the minute playing like that. Yes, and it's like, I think this debate comes because of some positional teams are really boring because they are not um, trying to be that dynamic and mobile through the pitch. You, mm-hmm. you can see coaches that like want to be positionally as Guardiola or, or Tuchel or that kind of, of successful managers. And they don't quite have the success. And the players are very far from each other. And they don't find and the ball circuits they don't exist like the build-ups of 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 this team they are not quite right and they're not quite uh, quick like Guardiola's team or whatever uh, successful coaches like mm-hmm. to play in a positional uh, method but it, it also comes in a way that people want to see players more like free in their roles and People want to see them being random and create, and, uh, like being street football, like moving and moving and moving and moving, and and do not keep static on the game. But it has worked throughout the years. Argentina were looking to apply this quite a a not that deep, but in the World Cup qualifiers they were near in one lane so in relation to the ball and people have criticized Argentina because in the World Cup matches they have been the players have been so far from the ball when a center back has the ball the players have gone 
really, really far, almost in the final third. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of thing that it may be starting and people like it because of what I'm saying to you, like players have more free role and it's free and fun football and quick touches. And obviously that is kind of romantic to the eyes of a football fan or football analyst because it's, it's crazy to see. When you see Fluminense Dinis, you kind of fall in love because they move the ball so quick. And and the, the, the opponents kind of don't know what to do because they're defending like six or eight players in one mm. zone. And it, it's it's cool, but it's valid. And, and I think ultimately, I, I, I touched on that point, it would force, um, I suppose, defensive structures to change too because defensive systems now, with the exception of certain outliers like a Marcelo Bielsa team or Jean-Pierre Gasparini side, they are very just zonal, compact, they all defend the same way and that kind of style of football would really... Kind of, um, I suppose, would you'd have to completely change, not completely change, but you would have to tweak how teams defend because you're defending so many players in one zone that you would have to kind of maybe think of a new defensive system. And I just wanted to say as well on, on you know, that style of play. I've watched Fluminense. I think they're incredible. They, they genuinely are, and I love watching them. My issue is just simply that the, the, the sample size and the case study is so small for somebody yeah. to call for that at an international level where, where there's there's no players that have played that style before, implementing that on the international stage when you have such little time as a manager would be nonsensical. Yeah. Lucas, you want to make another point about Dinis before we wrap up? Yeah, I mean, before jumping into the, this topic itself, I would say that I worked for years with the you know national leagues in Brazil. And in terms of being a case study, I think it's horrible because Brazil has some unique characteristics like excessive turnover of the squad, not only to mention the coaches between seasons. It makes professional traders absolutely crazy in terms of trying to compare and make models. So it may be hard to take anything in terms of lessons here. Mm-hmm. And specifically about the name of Fernando Diniz, I would say that, okay, these days, you know, a more attacking type of football is popular in Brazil. The press usually criticizes teams that focus on counterattacks, but he's a bit of an extreme case, and there is um, criticism and uh, controversy regarding his name. Not not just because that he has some stories of, uh, you know, outbursts that contribute to that, but if you consider, for example, it's almost certain that Titi won't keep in the Brazilian team. After the cup and all the polls at big websites of when uh, sports news suggest that the Brazilians don't want to see him in the national team. It's like mm-hmm. uh, he has a cult following, like uh, in the sense of being very popular because of the extreme attacking style. However, it's like uh, it's not uh, consensus, if you will. And I, I will also want to add something quickly, like. Uh, it's valid to play like that, but you can't force managers and players or coaching staff to play a, a way of football because of history of a team. Mm-hmm. If it was for that, I, I, I disagree with that narrative. I don't know if, if you as well, uh, Lucas and Adam, that narrative of if a team plays like that or a national team plays like that, it has to be that way through years and if that was like 
that Italy, the Italian Syria couldn't be as fun as it is right now because mm-hmm. Catenaccio has been kind of not totally deleted. Well, it's very, the, very close to being deleted. I mean, Italy is, cons- is consistently the yeah. highest scoring league in Europe at the minute. Exactly. Or we couldn't be seeing the Premier League constantly in a more positional play and not direct play, looking for long balls like they were in the past. The Bundesliga is also looking to be more positional than counter-attacking or, or rapid and explosive. Mm-hmm. So it's football and it's changing and like life it's changing and things the history will change and it's not because of that you have to go there and just play like that and if brazil plays like Jogo bonito or italy plays catenaccio that's the way we're going to play anytime and it's i disagree with that you cannot force minds and persons to think the way you want and because there is not a correct way to play football yeah i agree and even when you look at the italian league you see how up until i mean even now you see with gasparini there's so many of gasparini's disciples within italy that there's so many i think there's three or four teams like monza and and, and teams like that that are playing a very similar style to atlanta maybe not this season but certainly in the last couple of seasons and even overall in italy the revolution of of that really pragmatic and conservative football moving into the styles we see now with teams like Inter Milan and the rotations, even like rotating midfielders and wingers and everything and possession-oriented sides like you see Maurizio Sarri's Napoli or Lazio, apologies, and uh, Luciano Spalletti's Napoli. They've moved away from that old-school conservative style because it's it's the, the trend now and the clear successful blueprint has been that positional play, I suppose, to to an extent and Lucas your point as well on on Dennis is is very valid and I, I agree with you you know I think just because it's been relatively successful one team uh, you know I just I I think I for me anyway I would need to see way more examples of that being successful before myself as a manager would you know turn around and say okay yeah I'm, I'm going to start using the style you see Gasparini plays such a different style of play than anyone else in Italy and it took a couple of years but a manager started to catch on going okay this guy plays some some good football so they started using this and now you see in Italy there's several teams that play quite similar, similarly to Napoli especially teams that are coached by play, uh, former players of Gasparini like uh, Raffaele Palladino from Monza so it is really interesting and, and you know it's something certainly to think about especially in relation to the Brazilian national team Bryant Lucas, thank you so much for joining me today. I, I really enjoyed this chat. To all the listeners at home, I hope you enjoyed too. And make sure to tune in tomorrow as we review and preview all the action from the 2022 FIFA World Cup. So make sure to check back in for that and please share the podcast too as it really helps us grow. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.